Hey, good morning. Today we're going to talk about one of the hard sayings of Jesus. I've counted at least about 40 difficult things uh, that Jesus said, which is particularly tough for me because I struggle with all the easy things that he said. You know, that gives me enough to think about. Uh, but there are uh, several of these statements that Jesus makes that sometimes they're, uh, they're just hard to understand. What, what, did he, what did he mean by that? What is he talking about that? Sometimes we get it. It's like pretty obvious what he meant, so we understand it, but it's hard to accept. And then there are times when it's just hard to do. There's a saying in Matthew chapter 25 that we're going to look at today because I, I think it's, it, it really fits in nicely with where we are in our series about doing good deeds. Uh, and it also sort of represents all three of these things. I'll just give you a preview of what it is. It's when Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you did for me. Whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you did not do to me. First time I ever heard this statement that I can remember, actually, was at a Keith Green concert. Anybody remember Keith Green? He was one of my heroes back in the day uh, and just ministered so much. And I, I heard him in a concert, and he sort of spoke and sang this song uh, that had that in it, and it just really convicted me, and really spoke to me, because it's such a hard saying. I don't think, I don't think I've ever actually, after about 900 messages, I don't know if I've ever really preached on this, but it is a saying that we've got to understand, we've got to accept it, and we've got to do it. And if we want to be his people, if we want to be followers of his, and be sure, be certain that we're in right standing with the Lord, uh, I think it's essential that we understand this, this scripture. Bonjour. So far in this series, we've learned that doing good means following Jesus for others' sake. Last week, what we focused on uh, was doing good with the everyday people in our lives. Those acquaintances, those people that you kind of know and you kind of don't know. Uh, we talked about what would this community look like? What would it feel like in Knoxville if Calvary all of a sudden said, hey, we're going to do good deeds to the people around us, to these, these, these people uh, just kind of in our peripheral vision that we see every day or every week or every month, and we're going to get creative with that, and we're going to think of some things. And se several of you uh, mentioned to me in, in the halls just talking or at cafe or uh, in an email, just, hey, I had this idea, and here's what I did, and and that's kind of funny. One person said, I just decided I really felt like God was telling me to pay for the person in line behind me at the McDonald's. And they said, I held my breath thinking, oh, with my luck, it's going to be like a, a soccer team or a little league team in that van, and it's, it's going to be like a $90 bill. And they got up there, and the person had only ordered one of those drinks. So it was like, you know, buck seventy-nine. And they thought, oh, I did my good deed, and oh, I got out pretty cheap, too. Um, I don't know what you did, but I hope you continue d doing that. Uh, and that's what we talked about in our series. W what I want to do, what I want to hopefully emerge out of uh, th those moments is that doing good would mean that I would see people as Jesus sees people. That I would do for people what Jesus would do for people. That I would find a way uh, to bless them. This morning... We're going to learn about what it means to do good to a very different category of people. So let's turn our attention to this hard saying of Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 25. 
Um, it begins at the 31st verse, and I don't know if I was clear with you guys with tech. I'm going to go all the way through the 46th verse. So if they, if they drop out on you, just, just keep reading or pretending to read. Verse 31 in Matthew 25, uh, because I want, to get, I want you to get the whole idea, the whole complete thought of this, what this text is talking about. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Check this out. For I was hungry... And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. When I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't take care of me. And then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and and not help you? And he would answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do it for me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life, into eternal life. Wow, what a scripture. What is happening here? What what is this about? Well, first, let's be sure we understand the context. Understand, you know, get the big picture of what he's talking about. And we read that in verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... That's the moment that this is, this is taking place and this conversation happens. He says all of his angels are with him. He sits on his glorious throne. All the nations, all the nations are gathered uh, before him. And then he begins this process. He separates the people one from another, just like a shepherd separates sheep from goats at the end of the day. Some commentators will call this a prophecy. Others will say, it's a parable. It's, it's a parable. I think, here's, you know, the great theologian I am, I think it's actually both. Uh, like a prophecy, it speaks about an actual, literal event that will take place sometime in the future. But like a parable that uses this imaginative metaphor to describe what that event's going to be like. These aren't really sheep and really goats. They're, it's, it's us. It, it, it's people. And and this event is describing the final judgment at the end of the age. Now, I looked at this, and I actually started preparing this before this week, and we started ramping up to yesterday, I think was supposed to be the day of the rapture. 
And all the hubbub about that and, you know, the media, why this one guy, there's probably 20 guys a day making predictions, you know, about the end of the world, but they, they kind of locked on uh, to this fellow and, and, and really followed th this story. And uh, as you may or may not have heard, a lot of people bought into that. And some people sold their homes. They moved out there. They, they got up early that day. Uh, Kevin bought an Escalade. Uh, just a... Uh, it was just kind of crazy, a lot of the things that people were, were doing and kind of waiting. I was interviewed, being a local celebrity, uh, on Channel 6 the, the afternoon before. And I said, well, I'm going to skip my workout. I'm going to Hardee's. I'm going to get that big bacon thing. You know? <laughs> I'm just gonna, yeah, why not? Um, but, you know, we kind of knew that none of that was going to really happen. You know, we, we didn't believe that because Scripture doesn't teach that. You can't figure that out with numerology or anything else. In fact, the Bible says in, in this chapter that even Jesus doesn't know when that day will be. Only the Father knows. Now, most of the media had a good joke, right? I mean, we, and that's the thing that kind of bothers me about this, and, and I, I don't want to be too sensitive because we're, we've, we're used to kind of being the butt of jokes sometimes, but because this one guy says this, a lot of the stations will say, oh, Christians are so disappointed, or Christians were looking at things. No, 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 he does not speak with, with authority. He does not represent us. In fact, I would say 99% of believers in the world were going, don't listen to that guy. But it degrades, I think, our presence. Uh, and it's easy to poke fun of us, and it just kind of makes us look silly. And what concerns me is that as, as we're like a freight train headed toward the real event, that this is really going to happen one day, and by the time that that comes, I think most of the world will go, ha, oh, not again. Seriously, you guys, stop it. Stop it. It's, the joke's getting old. It's, you know, it's time to let that go. We just look silly. You know, the Bible teaches that when human history has run its course, God will bring all things to an end with the return of His Son. And on that day, everything in heaven and earth will be set right, including the final judgment of human beings. That's really going to happen. We will then spend eternity with God or without God, depending on the choices that we've made in this life. Now, this is a subject other than this week, you know, because it was kind of a curiosity. And, you know, we're looking at, I think time begins in New Zealand. Is that right? And everybody was looking at, you know, that place and saying, what time was it? It's supposed to be 6 p.m. And then when it didn't happen, just like every guy who does prophecy goes, oh, 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 wait. And they start changing it up at the last minute. You know how that works? Oh, wait. What I meant was, or, oh, let's, we're going to shift that to midnight. And I thought, okay, you just bought yourself a little more time, but not much to try to explain your way out of this. Ed Stetzler says, I'm waiting for him to post an apology and to repent online as verbally and as animated as we made those prophecies. That usually doesn't, uh, that doesn't happen. You know, the truth is that the Bible is so clear about this that there's something that just kind of permeates culture no matter what your background. In fact, you know that most people in most cultures all throughout human history have believed in some sort of final judgment in an afterlife? In fact, right here in our country, in the United States, 
Polls suggest that about 80% of Americans believe there will be a day of reckoning. So even though we have a good laugh about it and we you know, come up with some clever things, 80% of the people not in the church, in the country, believe, yeah, I kind of think something like that's going to happen. This isn't going to spin forever. This passage tells us that on that day, Jesus will be the judge. And to judge, uh, there are different words that mean different kind of judgment. And in, in this particular circumstance, it means to decide. It means to divide. It's sort of like um, the home plate umpire when somebody hits a line drive and you're watching maybe down the first baseline or third baseline, and he can see where that ball's going to hit. And if it hits on this side, it's in. It's a fair ball. The, you know, the play's going on. But if it hits just to the outside, it goes, it's a foul, foul. You, 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 keep, you keep going. You, you, we get that, right? Most of us. Um, this is sort of like that. This is the same word where Jesus is watching uh, to divide the righteous from the unrighteous. And it's the, it happens in the same way in their culture. Instead of a baseball illustration, whether a ball's foul or fair, they would use sheep and goats. Uh, because a shepherd would literally uh, do this dividing every night when he brings the herds in from the fields. The sheep in this parable represent the righteous. Uh, obviously, the goats uh, represent those who do not belong uh, to God, and therefore will spend an eternity apart from God. We don't really have time to get into a discussion about hell and all the dynamics of that and what that is, but Jesus describes a reality that we can't fully understand uh, but it is a reality uh, that we don't want anyone to have to experience. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but I think if we ever got a glimpse, if we got just like a 30-second keyhole view into hell, it would absolutely revolutionize the way you evangelize. It would change the way you think about your life and the lives of the people around you. We need to realize that to be separated from God is the worst thing that could ever happen to a person because it means being separated from everything that is good and true and beautiful and light. And I guess that's what disturbs me the most about the, this message of this text, uh, that the thing that, that makes this saying so hard is that Jesus seems to be saying that he will make his determination based on how we have responded to the least of these. You check it out. Go back home and read these verses again for yourself. And you think, okay, so that's why he called that a hard saying, because it really looks like Jesus was saying, if you were nice to these least of these, I'm going to take you to heaven. If you weren't, if you were mean or negligent or just, you know, you just kind of ignore them, you know what? You're going to go to hell. Wait, that is it? We hadn't heard it put in those terms before. But it just raises a lot of questions, you know. Uh, if that's how he makes his determination. Uh, and, and three that, I, that I, I, I scribbled out because it kind of gets my attention. Who are these least of these? If i got to be good to them, I need to know who they are. I, I kind of want to get in touch with those folks. What exactly is it that Jesus is expecting of us? What, what, is he, what do you mean? Could you, could you spell that out? What, what is it you want us to do? And what happens if we fail? How do we know we fail? And what, what happens if we don't, we don't get this right? Now, there's probably 20 more questions you have about this passage than I have, but uh, 
let's, let's kind of put those on the shelf for now, and let's just go after those three. First of all, who are the least of these? What does he mean by the least of these? Who's he referring to? I think, and the traditional understanding, is that the least of these just simply refers to the poor and the needy. The poor and the needy. Some people think because Jesus said these brothers of mine that he meant, oh, just the poor and needy who are following Jesus. In other words, church, you need to take care of each other. Everybody within this subculture group, these followers of Jesus, you need to take care of each other. He's not talking about the rest of the world. I, I, I absolutely don't get that. I don't think that's what he meant, and it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty tight there. Um, so they argued for that. I, I think it's clear that Jesus had in mind people who, for one reason or another, are needy and they're vulnerable all over the world. First, they're the hungry. Do you know that one out of every seven people in the world don't have enough to eat? One out of every seven. One out of four children in developing countries are underweight. Nine million people a year die of hunger or related causes. Just a few weeks ago, you know, we had this operation with Jean-Michel. We think one of the contributing factors of why he was not strong enough to live through that surgery was because of malnutrition. Because his little body just couldn't build up enough strength and get the right chemicals in the right places and the right amounts to be able to withstand the trauma uh, that your body goes through. Just to be hungry. Something we only know in, in brief moments between meals. In fact, most people never actually experience genuine hunger. They just experience the fact that it's 12 o'clock and it's time to eat. It's 6 o'clock, it's dinner time, and we're just on automatic. But when you're really hungry, you can't work, you can't go to school, you can't play, your body can't fight diseases, you can't bear and raise healthy children, you can't even carry them to term. Every hour of every day is just obsessively devoted to searching for sustenance. And that becomes the focus of your life. I remember when Clinton Christine first brought uh, Oaken over, and he, he stays with us a lot. His favorite food is crystal. Isn't that just like an American? The first thing he would, he would get all about is crystal. Um, when he first came, all he could say was, Hamburger! Hamburger! <laughs> and that's, he would recognize certain signs and just point and just say, say that. And that's all he would say. So um, we, we try to get those for him. The first time I met him was about three years ago in, in Haiti at an orphanage, and he looked just like all the other children. Um, when Dorans brought him over, he weighed 35 pounds. And we would go through the drive-thru and get crystal. He would always get more than I knew he could eat. I thought, you can't eat six crystal. He would eat four, and he would hide the other two. And after he leaves, you know, I look in his room, and here's, here's a cookie hidden away. He, he does this. He's got a cookie on our, our pew right now because he gets two. He always eats one, and he keeps the other one. Do you get that? Do you see how that's just hardwired into him? I thought the Dorans just aren't feeding this child enough. Why? Why don't you take care of this boy? And I realized, no, he's learned a survival technique. Because for most of his life, he's just been hungry. 
Clint took him to Market Square once and, and turned around and noticed that he had gone over to a trash can and was picking out stuff to eat. He said, stop, don't do that. That's not what we do here. He goes, what are you talking about? That's where I, what I do where I come from. Just a whole day. I'm just trying to get you to see just one kid. And there's thousands and thousands of them that, you know, that, that we know and that we've met and that we know are out there that we're, we try to minister to because they're just hungry. Before his surgery, I live eight houses into a subdivision and across the street is an elementary school and they've got a really nice playground. We'd go over and play on this playground and by the time we had played 30, 45 minutes and had to go home, he couldn't walk home. He was too tired. Every time we would go to what he calls the park, I would have to carry him home because he was just so weak. Folks, there's times I feel like, oh, I've got to cut back, you know? And so I go on a diet, and there's like a bazillion different kinds, and you feel hungry. I, I always want one. I don't have to be hungry. That's why I tell Kathy, okay, I'll do this if I don't have to be hungry. He goes, well... I don't think you quite get the idea of what's behind this. The worst of all the diets, it's the, the, the diet from heck. And Joe will be, because uh, I, 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 I got him in on it and made him do it with me. Or he, he just thought it was cool. It's called the Baptist Hospital Diet. And you eat air and bugs and crackers. It's just the most awful thing in the world. You, just, you don't live on any, And of course you lose weight because you're start, you know, your body starts shutting down. Uh, we understand in just bits and pieces what a lot of people live with every day. And then there are the thirsty. Can you imagine waking up every day without water? Without water for drinking, for cooking, for even washing? Imagine spending four or five hours every day going to fetch water for your family. When we first started going to this orphanage, the ladies would get up every morning about 3.30 or 4, and they would walk a couple of miles to this, the clearest, cleanest spring, and they would fill up every container that they could carry with them, and they would bring them back to the orphanage, and that was their water for the day. They did that again and again and again and again. And I'll never forget standing there with Chris Keelan one time, and we're, we're looking at this place, and we're saying, well, what about a well? Yeah, we've got a perfect spot, and we're ready to do it. How much would a well be? $400. What? Are you telling me you could have water on site and not have to do this day after day, month after month, week after week, year after year after year for $400? Let's dig a well. Let's dig a well. See, some of us might look at that, though, and I'm just, I'm just saying $400. $400, man, I could get a new phone. I could get, uh, you know, a, a new kind of thing make a difference. Just being thirsty. You carry it on your back or in buckets on top of your head and you imagine that that water is what's keeping you alive. And the water that they often bring home in many places around the world is teeming with bacteria and parasites and waterborne diseases that would make us sick so easily. That is a daily reality for 1.2 billion people. Then there are the poor. And these who, that, I think that's who Jesus is referring to when he says, I needed clothes. I needed clothes. We used to go to the Navajo Reservation. It was so easy to learn the children's names. 
not just because of their faces, but because they wore the same clothes every day. Kid in the red shirt, yeah, I know who he is. You know, that, the, the little girl in the blue dress. You just know who they are because they've got this one thing. You know that the average American lives on about $100 a day? For my daughter, that's $500 a day. I'm <laughs> just kidding. That's all on you. Um, it's a few weeks and... Okay. We live on $100 a day. That's what it keeps for the average American to keep us going. A billion people in the world live on less than $1 a day. And clothes are just the beginning of what they need. Just the beginning. Because when you're poor, you don't have any options. I mean, I'm embarrassed. I look in my closet and I think, wow, I've got to get some of these shirts out of here. I'm never going to wear those again. I mean, they're just, you ever have to clean out your closet because things are so packed in? You can't, you can't get to them. You can't see it because you've got so many clothes. You know what I have? I'm the king of T-shirts. I have so many shirts, and there's like this emotional bond with every one of them. Oh, no, that's when I ran that 3K. Oh, no, I can't. No, i got to keep that one. Oh, that's when we went down to Margaritaville. Yeah, no, I'm going to keep Not that we, okay. Um, I'm going to give you a thing. And, you know, and, and, oh, that was our Little League shirt, and that was, so I just keep them. I could clothe half the world just with my T-shirts. Most people, that's just a beginning place. Then they're the sick. In the U.S. and in Europe, two out of every 1,000 children die before their fifth birthday. Two out of every 1,000. In Africa, 165 out of every 1,000 won't make it to their fifth birthday. Malaria, TB, AIDS, those are the three biggest killers. And if you were to take all the children who've been orphaned because of AIDS and have them hold hands, the chain of children would stretch from New York to Los Angeles five times. The hungry, the thirsty, the poor, the sick. We haven't even begun to talk about the refugees and the prisoners, and I mean, it just goes on and on. These are the kind of people that Jesus is talking about. These are the needy. These are the vulnerable. These are the people in the world that need help. Of course, they're not just across the border in developing countries. There are many that are right here in our home as well, in our cities, and in our suburbs, in this community. According to Jesus, it's our response. I know this is a hard saying. It's our response to these people that will determine whether he welcomes us into his kingdom or not. I don't know what you're going to do with that. I'm still thinking about that. I'm still trying to figure out did you really mean what you said? Did, is that, were you talking figuratively, maybe? That leads us to the next question. Well, then what is it that Jesus expects us to do? What does it mean to do good deeds? What is this series all about? Especially when you say you've got to do it to the least of these. God, what do you expect of me? God expects us to feel what he feels for the needy and the vulnerable. And if you're feeling uncomfortable, if this disturbs you, and if these statistics and the images that we talk about this morning kind of bother you, good. 
<laughs> Amen. We should be uncomfortable. We should be disturbed. We should be angry. Because that's how Jesus felt. When you read through the Gospels, how many times do you see Jesus being moved with compassion? How many times do we see him just stop what he's doing to relieve the pain in somebody's life, to alleviate suffering? How many times is he disturbed by the exploitation or the neglect of people who are created in the image of God? Jesus still feels that way today. When Jesus refers to these brothers and sisters of mine, he's expressing his identification with the needy and with the vulnerable. You know, I just explored that thought, and and Jesus was homeless at the time of his birth. He began his life as a refugee. He was chased out of his own country by this baby-killing tyrant. He grew up in a working-class family. As an adult, he said, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. He was rejected by his own people. He was abandoned by his followers. He was brutally beaten by sadistic soldiers. He was executed for a crime he didn't commit. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says, I get it about being needy and vulnerable. There's a kinship that he has that he wants us to have. That can be hard for us because most of us don't rub shoulders every day with those folks, with the least of these. Some of us, because of where you live or your ministry or your job, maybe you do more often than than other people. But for a lot of us, it's just a little abstract. Just kind of like we we know there are folks out there, but how, how do I get in touch with them? Can you imagine? Can you imagine waking up this morning and reading in the newspaper? that a hundred jetliners crashed yesterday and that that killed over 26,000 people, would that not be the news story of the decade? Can you imagine the grief and the outrage that we would feel? Imagine the outpouring of money and volunteers that would go to all these sites and and just would would follow that catastrophe on and on and on. Imagine the intensity with which governments and agencies would do everything in their power to stop such a thing from ever happening again. Then imagine that it happened again tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, and every day that happened. The fact is, it is happening. Every day in our world, 26,500 children die every day of preventable causes related directly to poverty. 26,000 children will die today. We've got to do something besides just feel grieved disturbed and angered by that. We have to do more than just, well, I just feel so sorry for those people. Folks, we're the church. We've got to do something. We have to do something to help them. And I think that's the second thing that God expects of of, of us, is to feel what Jesus feels for the needy and the vulnerable, and then go do something about it. I love that, you know, we had a a men's breakfast yesterday, and it was really awesome, and Brother J.O. shared just some great stories, and, you know, just a little bit of glimpse into his life. But one of the things I walked away with that I remember, and I don't know if J.O. Is, is, is in the room. There he is. Um, 
Hey, you know, after the storms, when the storms hit, and by the way, on July 6th, this man's going to be 90 years old, okay? Um, and the day, yeah. yeah. The day after the storm, I got up, and I'm calling my adjuster. I'm walking around my house. I'm looking at my downspouts. I'm looking at my roof. I'm looking at all my screens that got tore up. I'm assessing the damage to my place. I got my cars inside. I know most of you. I'll just look over here. You guys got every student's like, where do we go? You know, go to the drive-thru at the bank and just leave your car right there. No, that won't work. Uh, and they just, they just got, everybody got their cars beat up. You know, and we're all looking at our stuff. We're all looking at our stuff on what happened. J.O. went down to Sears the next day, 89 years old, and bought a chainsaw. <laughs> he said, well, I knew there's going to be people going to need help. I've got to get something done. And so the most logical thing for me to do on the day after the storm is go down to Sears, buy a chainsaw, so that I can help people get out of this mess. And while I'm there, I'm going to witness to a guy. And <laughs> that's what he did. That wasn't on my radar. I'm trading stories at the deli with, oh yeah, let me tell you what happened to me. You know? I, mean, I think that's, a, that's just a little taste of what he's talking about here, folks. We got to do something. And, and I think the righteous in this story were commended because they did something. They fed somebody. They gave somebody a drink. They welcomed strangers into their lives. They put clothes on people's back. They, they took care of someone who was sick. They, they performed surgery on folks who couldn't ever get medical care where they lived. They visited people because they were locked up in prison. And you notice they didn't do everything. You ever get fired up and you think, I've got to do it all. I'm going I'm to go to the orphanage. I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to go to the, 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 the retirement home. And I'm going to... No, they, they couldn't do everything. They could do something. They could do something. They didn't help everybody, but they helped somebody. There's someone. They didn't solve world hunger. They didn't get rid of, you know, all the diseases. They didn't take every homeless person off the streets. They just did what they could. Where they were with what they had. And let me just free you up because that's all that God asks of you. You don't have to carry this burden of false guilt because you can't change the world, but you can change somebody's life. And that's all God expects. There's so many good things. There's a lot of good things being done in the world and, and a lot of good things being done through folks here at Calvary. I love being a part of this church because you've always had that heartbeat. I love being identified with you. But if you're like me, you can't hear these words of Jesus and not feel convicted and challenged to do something and to do more than we're doing. In case you're not feeling it yet, <laughs> um, let me share with you a paraphrase of Jesus' words in Matthew 25. Listen to when I read it this way. For I was hungry, but you went out to eat again. I was thirsty, but you drank bottled water. I was a stranger, you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out all the behaviors that led to that sickness. I was in prison, and you said, well, you're just getting what you deserve. Do you begin to feel what Jesus feels for the needy and for those who are vulnerable? When you do, you just want to do something. And I don't know at this point what all God's going to ask us to do as a congregation this year. I've got some ideas. We're already engaged in some of those things. 
and we've already been on one huge project, but I know this, it begins with awareness. Well, there's just this one question we, we need to wrap up with, and that's this. What happens if we fail? What if we don't do good to the least of these? What are the consequences about that? Wow, according to this text, when we turn our backs on the needy and the vulnerable, we're turning our backs on Jesus. We're denying him. We're rejecting him. We're betraying him. Choose whatever word you want. It doesn't make it any less serious. And if you're like me, you're trying to read into this and go, wait, 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 stop. I, don't, I, don't, I can't accept that. That's not what he's talking about. It must not mean that. It's got, um, have you checked it out in the Greek? Uh, maybe it was some kind of a custom back then to say stuff and overdo it. And, you know, we start peddling because we don't want it to mean what it means. But it does. Jesus says that our response to the needy and the vulnerable is, in fact, an expression of our response to him. And when we turn our backs on them, we're turning our backs on him. That's why this is so serious. That's why I said it's a hard saying. Understand, this text is not saying that we're saved by our good deeds. I hope you make that distinction. That is not at all what Jesus means. Now, as long as you're generous to the poor and needy, as long as you do that, you're good, you're golden, you're in. That's not what he's saying. The way we get into the, into the kingdom, the scripture says again and again and again, is we're only saved by virtue of our relationship to Christ. And that is when he forgives, we've trusted him, and he forgives us of our sins, and he makes us new people. Jesus himself said, whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. This, this hard saying that we're looking at today just simply teaches that true followers of Jesus will fill Feel what Jesus feels. We'll do what Jesus does. And if we don't, I'm just going to put this out there for you to go home and think about. If we don't, you've got to ask yourself, am I really who I believed I was? If that doesn't bother me, I don't do anything, that doesn't touch my heart. It's not what you believe that matters. It's what you believe enough to act on. It's what you do with what you believe. It's always been there. For James, the brother of Jesus, he put it like this in James chapter 2, verse 14. He said, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? No good deeds? What good is that? Then he asked this question. Look at this. Can his faith save him? Tell me that's not in the Bible. Tell me James didn't just say that. Well, that's great. You talk about spiritual things and you're all religious. Are you doing good deeds? Is that faith? It's a hard say. It's a tough thing. We're not saved by caring for the poor and needy. Okay? I hope, I hope you really get that. But we are saved by turning to Christ in repentance and faith. But caring for the poor and needy is one of the most obvious ways to demonstrate that that faith is really there. It's genuine and it's active in your life. So when we fail to do that, when we turn our backs on these people, we're turning our backs on Jesus. Can we be forgiven for doing that? Yes, of course. 
Of course, absolutely. When we come to him in repentance and when we ask for his forgiveness and, and the grace begins to flow in our lives, we can begin fresh and new. You may think, Dan, I, just, I know I'm in Christ. I know I've made that commitment, but man, you're just busting me. I'm, 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 you just nailed me on this. I, I don't do anything. I don't have any ministry. I don't take care of any of these people you're talking about. Then repent. Just repent and start today. Start right now. 2011 is the year that everything changes for you. This series, you think, you know, God, of all the things you did for me, that series on that day when I decided I'm going to do something, I can't do everything, but I'm going to do something for somebody, and your life begins to change. When we consistently fail to love what Jesus loves, to do what Jesus does, we call into question our faith in him, and we, we endanger If I understand this text right, folks, we endanger our own souls. Wow, this is is huge. Okay, we could spend a lot more time talking about this passage. There are a lot of questions that I don't even have answers to yet. Uh, A lot of practical ideas for doing good deeds that we can explore. And I hope you do. But I think that's enough for now. And I think that we're going to have to let this kind of settle into our hearts and our souls. And we've got to take that next step. I've prayed all weekend that this would disturb you and convict you and poke at you and and bug you a little bit and convict you and challenge you. Just enough for you to say, I'm not going to live like this anymore. I'm not going to be this selfish. I'm going to go in my closet and get some of those shirts out and I'm going to give them to somebody. I'm I'm going to do something to change somebody's life. Let's pray about that right now. I'm going to ask you just to stand with me, and it may be that you're at a place in your life where you have been involved. Maybe it's been sporadic and off and on in your life. You've gotten involved in mission trips or projects, but then you get home and the shine wears off, and a week or two later you're back to yourself again. Would you join me this morning, and let's just recommit ourselves and say, Lord, we're, we're going to do good deeds. We're going to do them to the random people in our lives. We're going to try to make a difference in folks that we see all the time. And, and, and they're going to know that we're not just like everybody else in the neighborhood or in the classroom or at the job site. We're different. There's something unique about the way we care for others. And Father, today we, we want to pick up this specific challenge that we're going to do good deeds to those who are the least of these. We're not all sure, and it won't be the same thing for each one of us. But I hope we can recommit ourselves as your children, as followers of you, and as a church. We're going to make a difference. Because we're doing it for you. We're doing it to you. If you'd join me in that, I'm going to ask you just um, just pray where you are. just follow the Holy Spirit. You may want to just join me on these steps and just let's just kneel and pray here. Let's pray first of all for the least of these and then let's pray for our response that God would lead us to do exactly the right thing again and again and again. Father, we leave this with you and we, we lift up this moment to you. Oh, Father, please give us the heart and the grace not to ignore the least of these but to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and 
to make a difference when and where we can. And when we stand before you on that day that will come, that judgment day, Father, you would be able to say, well done. Because we did those things that were important to you. For your glory, please help us in Jesus' name.